One of the things that I know for a fact in my experience that helps keep compassion alive in a conversation is curiosity. So if you come at me with something that's diametrically opposed to what I believe in, rather than saying you're wrong, it's more of a curiosity. Well, tell me more about how did you come to that understanding? Explain to me your journey. And that then creates a little bit of a dialogue. And in a dialogue, that's kind of like fertile ground for compassion to exist. And so once again, I can't convince anybody of anything, but if I can be present and sit in a really compassionate, curious space, we might find some place for change to happen. Welcome back to the You Need a Counselor podcast. This is a show presented by Heart and Solutions Counseling Agency. We release new episodes every Sunday at 5 p.m. Central and encourage you to batch up that laundry, put away the dishes, plan for the week ahead, or do any other task that might seem daunting while you give our show a listen. You might just be encouraged to call your therapist, connect with this week's guest, or seek out those services you've been considering for a while but haven't made the commitment to yet. If you are in the state of Iowa and are in need of mental or behavioral health counseling, give us a call at 1-800-531-4236. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to the You Need a Counselor podcast. My name is Dr. Julie Johnson. I'm the president and founder here of Heart and Solutions in Iowa. And I'm Krista Hunt. I am our vice president in charge of the behavioral health department. And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So we are designed for people curious about counseling, but have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. Our guest today is a returning guest. Uh, from California. We have John Sovek here today. Uh, John is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He specializes in working with adults, or I'm sorry, with young adults, adolescents, uh, and their families as well. Um, He is the author of Out, A Parent's Guide to Supporting Your LGBTQIA Plus Kid Through Coming Out and Beyond. And last time we talked a lot about uh, the the effects of coming out, not only the one time, right? Like we see in movies, like, oh, I'm coming out now, I'm out. Uh, But the process, the lifelong (laughs) process of coming out to various new people that we meet and to ourselves in different portions of our identity. Um, And so uh, the book is A Parent's Guide really to helping support uh, the young people in our lives, not only parents, uh, but recommended for teachers, recommended for uh, uncles and aunts and anybody who has a young person uh, in their life that they want to support uh, in any fashion. Uh, John is also a collaborator on OutTalk, um, and that's at outcarehealth.org slash OutTalk. Uh, I've been listening to these and really, really enjoying them, uh, the different discussions that are happening, uh, the different collaborators coming together and expressing their different point of views. Uh, just really fantastic content there. So uh, we'll get to talk about OutTalk today. Uh, and John also serves uh, for on the California Board of Behavioral Sciences. Uh, he was appointed by the governor there uh, to that board, which is a huge uh, 
accolade, but I think just speaks to uh, the professionalism and the service uh, that John is putting out there into the world, uh, helping people with their mental health, helping them with their family relationships um, and the impacts that we have on each other as humans. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us again. Oh, absolutely. And you know, a funny thing about getting uh, appointed to the board by the governor's office is now every Christmas, I actually get a Christmas card from the governor with like his family picture and everything. Now, you know, it's one of those mass mailed out cards they do to like everyone, but it's the first year it came, it's like, what is this? Cause it's all very fancy and pretty and calligraphy and gold leaf and all that. And you open it up, it's like, you know, happy holidays from the governor. You're like, <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I'll stop by for eggnog and cookies later on. That is, that is very cool. I mean, to have the governor of California sending you a holiday card uh, is, that's a big deal. So, uh, and you do so many different speaking engagements. You have been on so many shows and, uh, and done so many different platforms. Uh, it's just amazing uh, how, how well and how far you are spreading this message um, of really of, of hope for people in their relationships. Uh, so I just think it's wonderful. Um, so tell us about, let's talk about what you do for that, the board of, uh, sciences out there in California or the board of behavioral science in California. Um, are there initiatives that you are working on or things that are exciting for you right now? Well, it's really interesting. When I got first appointed to the board, I was aware of kind of maybe a quarter of what they actually did. And so I came on board knowing a lot of it had to do with, you know, the well-being of mental health care in California. We do disciplinary actions and pieces like that. And I felt really well equipped to step into that part of the work. What I didn't realize is like the deep level of advocacy and legislation and policy work that we did. And I did not know that inside of myself, I actually found that stuff really exciting and fascinating. Um, we have the most amazing legislative analyst. And what she does is she prepares like, like there are bills that are going through the state Senate. And she looks at the ones that would affect mental health care and that she brings them to us and kind of coalesces them down to why we should support or ask for amendments or, or you know, oppose these types of bills. And then when we have something like a really big piece of legislation that went through recently here in California was the ability for people to change their name, especially trans and non-binary people, so that they wouldn't have to have their license have their dead name on it. And it took a lot of work to bring this bill out because one of our duties is also a public safety. So we had to find a mechanism where we could respect the needs of trans and non-binary people and at the same time allow for public safety to be able to research previous disciplinary actions or anything like that. And so watching this bill finally come through was such an amazing moment in the work that we do with the board. Absolutely. I mean, what a what a big project and what an important project uh, for so many and balancing those two responsibilities uh, of the board uh, into, into this way of doing it that fulfills both needs uh, is just uh, what a great collaboration there. So congratulations on that one. That is that's it's wonderful. And thank you for your work on that. Yeah. And it's really exciting to be involved in that. And the other thing that I learned is nothing in government moves quickly. <laughs> 
it is a process and it takes time and, you know, you propose it and then it goes through the, you know, legal analyst office and then it goes back to the sponsor and then the sponsor has things on it and blah, blah, blah. And then two sessions later, it's being postponed till next year. And it's a process getting anything done. Um, but that's where you really have to dig in and have this long-term picture as to why like a bill like this is so important. Absolutely. What, uh, what, sparked this in you, this desire to, now I know that you were appointed by the governor, but you were appointed for a reason. And so <laughs> this, this desire to serve and to, uh, to bring these new initiatives um, to the state, what, what kind of drives that in you? Well, I think for me, it's been like kind of a, a culmination of my life journey. You know, it started off with my, you know, personal journey into, you know, understanding my queerness and how it affects me in the world and not just, you know, oh, look, I've come out and this is who I am, but also the internal process of what my community means to me. And then that led to me, you know, being much more vocal about the needs of the LGBTQIA plus community. It led to me getting more education. It led to me actually getting my licensure. And then that step into, well, now I want to speak in these larger platforms. And you've talked how I speak all over the country and actually all over the world now and bring this idea of creating affirming spaces for LGBTQIS people is an absolute essential part of what we need to do to create a better society. And so this advocacy and this activism, it's always been there inside of me. Um, I was actually telling a friend of mine this story the other day in high school, our vice principal, like it was like, uh, I was running for student council and the vice principal introduced us all to give our little campaign speeches. But he said something that was very like um, racist in, in, in his introduction. And I like tossed aside my election speech. and was like, I'm sorry, everyone, I need to pause this because my being elected is not as important as calling out what just happened in this moment. And I called out the vice principal of having made this racist comment. Of course, I get into all kinds of trouble. And at the same time, later on, I had teachers pull me aside and said, we're really proud of you for stepping up to something you believe. And so that's kind of been in me since for a long, 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 long time. Oh, what a great story. Uh, and it really, you know, speaks to just your bravery in saying the things that need to be said uh, and seeing the, the need for this change as no, this is something that needs to happen, uh, not something that, you know, would be nice if it happened. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that, that that really speaks to, you know, all the service that you do. And I also am a very strong believer. I know as part of the school that I went to and, you know, kind of the theory that I sit in, which is a very postmodern stance, is that part of our work as therapists is about social justice, about creating change. You know, whether it's supporting someone singularly in the room, whether it's having an agency and creating community change, whether it's using that agency platform to step up and start talking about policy within your community. I, I personally think that we as therapists have a bigger calling. We have chosen to step into this place where we, we care about the individuals that we interact with. And so we can take that and we can find where our passion is to make change in our community. And so for me, I do think we have a bigger calling and the ability to make a difference simply because of the career we've chosen. And for, uh, you know, young people, students, or uh, really anybody who wants to get involved, but is like, 
I'm not going to be appointed to <laughs> the board by the governor, right? How, how do I get involved? Uh, what suggestions might you give to somebody listening who goes, yes, I feel that too. I'm inspired and I want to, that's who I am as well. I want to help. Uh, mm-hmm. What suggestions might you give them? Well, I think the first thing is find out what your passion of help is. Is it maybe helping the homeless community? Is it maybe helping women who are, you know, been exposed to domestic violence? Is it helping, you know, adoptees? Is it helping immigration policy? Find out where your passion is. And then the first place to start into this is volunteer. Volunteer with some organization whose systems align with your beliefs and the change you want to see happen in the world, and then take it from there. And if this is your sweet spot and your passion, then everything will start to snowball and build in that direction. And so that starts small, start in your community, start with the people that are right around you and the agencies that are right around you, and then let it develop and grow from there. I love that starting small. And, and I think sometimes we see these, these big things that need to happen that impact everybody in the state. And, uh, and it's easy to overlook, you know, our neighbor that we can help in some way, mm-hmm. right? Or, or another student at school that we can support in some way, uh, either publicly or, or privately. So um, I think that's wonderful advice as well. And, uh, and so you talked about, um, I was telling you that I really, really enjoyed the out talks. <laughs> um, although when I say it in my mind, sometimes I think outtakes and I'm like, that's not right. It's out talk. <laughs> But, um, but I, I've really, really been enjoying them. And one of the uh, episodes that I really, really loved um, is about being out in corporate America. And, uh, and so I'm curious, being kind of a political figure, right, or being on that board and making these decisions and talking through the legisl- legislation and advocating, uh, are there challenges for gay people in the in these positions or did you experience any? Well, you know, it is interesting. I am in California, so there is a lot more space for my voice to be heard. But oftentimes when I'm traveling around the country, speaking at various conferences and doing trainings with organizations, I do hit against the kind of philosophical stance that those particular states have taken. Oftentimes right now in the US, we have a huge movement of anti-LGBTQ legislation going through. And to understand that that's uh, very strongly affecting our trans and non-binary community and being aware that sometimes I am stepping into spaces where people are not going to be welcoming of who I am or the message I have. And what I learned for myself is it's less about me. And like I just said, it is about the message. Because every time I step into these maybe more antagonistic spaces, by the honesty and the openness and the integrity that I bring to the conversation, I always have people at the end step up and speak to me personally about journeys they've had or journeys that their children have had or journey that they've witnessed their neighbor's kids have had. So by being willing to step into those spaces, understanding that I may not be the most welcome, but I can only bring myself and bring the message that I have to share, that that's where the change can happen. It goes back to that thing a moment ago, start small, start with your neighbor. And even on these large platforms that I speak of, I always do it in a way that is welcoming and affirming of everyone's journey up to the point when they meet me. Absolutely. Uh, It can be, uh, you talk a lot about empathy and you talk a lot about compassion. It can be difficult 
to provide compassion when we feel like we're not being provided compassion. Uh, and, and that is a challenging thing to do. How, how do you do that? Or how do you help your, uh, your clients to do that, to, to still be compassionate um, when we're not receiving that compassion back? Right. So what's the, there's a, like a Buddhist phrase that says, you know, if you don't have the time to meditate for an hour a day, then you should be meditating for four hours a day. And kind of expanding that into this compassion question. If I'm feeling my compassion being challenged, that actually means I need to dig deeper and access that compassion on an even bigger scale. Remember, not all the compassion comes from inside of me. It is also about being, you know, taking care of myself, moving into my wellness, into my mindfulness and being aware in that space. One of the things that I know for a fact in my experience that helps keep compassion alive in a conversation is curiosity. So if you come at me with something that's diametrically opposed to what I believe in, rather than saying you're wrong, it's more of a curiosity. Well, tell me more about how did you come to that understanding? Explain to me your journey. And that then creates a little bit of a dialogue. And in a dialogue, that's kind of like fertile ground for compassion to exist. And so once again, I can't convince anybody of anything but if I can be present and sit in a really compassionate, curious space, we might find some place for change to happen. And it is getting harder and harder to tap into that right now because we are in a very, very like polar environment right now in these conversations. And, you know, I have a lot of, you know, co colleagues in this world who are very good about getting up and being the in your face yelling person about how change has to happen. And we absolutely need them in this conversation. That's not my mode of making the change happen. So my space is just as important as theirs and everyone in between, as long as we're finding a way for our LGBTQ voices to be raised and heard. Yeah, I love that, uh, that we've the way that we affect change, the way that we affect our community, uh, the needs of the people in our lives and uh, in our areas and in our nation and world uh, is going to look so different. Um, and providing compassion and accepting compassion as well from others and from ourselves um, is going to look so different uh, depending from each person to each person. Uh, and so I, I think that's such a great way to think about that and to, uh, I like the phrase that you used when my compassion is challenged, <laughs> because mm -hmm. that will look very different <laughs> person <laughs> to person, right? So if I can picture somebody yelling and screaming in traffic, I go, oh, yep, their compassion is being challenged. <laughs> you know, but the other thing that I think helps in this as well, too, is, you know, really looking at, you know, the neurobiology of how we get triggered and understanding that, oh, I must be feeling unsafe in this morning. My system is releasing cortisol and adrenaline. I'm rising, I'm triggering. Huh, that's not a place where my brain can access information clearly. So let's get some breath in the body. Let's do some techniques that will help me to self-soothe. And then that allows me to move into a more compassionate space. So I think this whole, a lot of the you know trauma-based work that so many of us are doing out there is another way to help ourselves and others drop into compassion more easily. Wonderful. Uh, it, it feels like we're taking care of ourselves by doing that. And we are, but we're the way that we take care of ourselves does impact the way that we are able to engage with the world and to help other people. Mm -hmm.
So it all connects. That's wonderful. So I, uh, one of the books there, one of the questions that you had asked um, in that out talk uh, to your guests was, "What's a book that changed your life?" And uh, I, I know that your book <laughs> it changed your life, of course, um, but also changed the lives of so many that have read it as well, um, and not just for the readers, but for the family members of the readers. Um, for sometimes for people just knowing that there's a book Look like that out there, right, uh, makes a difference and changes things. Um, and so uh, your book, absolutely, I am, would want to talk a lot more about that. But also, is there another book that um, impacted your life as well? <laughs> well, I want to go back to the first one that the book I wrote out um, has impacted parents, has impacted kids. But the surprising impact that I did not expect was that I have had adult LGBTQIA plus people read the book and talk about how impactful it was for them to re-examine their journey of coming out through this really compassionate lens that the book is written in. That is not an audience that I had written for or expected to hear such beautiful response from. And so that has been really an honor for me to hear that coming out from a community of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s who came out a long time ago, but in reading this book, really got to travel through that journey again in a very supportive environment. So that was a surprise audience that I did not know was out there for this book. Absolutely. And that's so helpful to hear because the the title, A Parent's Guide, feels like, okay, well, I'm not a parent, right? <laughs> but in so many ways, we nurture ourselves. We nurture the, the child that we were. Or we, we nurture the kid that we were um, mm -hmm. in, in these ways. And uh, it sounds like your book is able to help people to feel nurtured and to see what happened in their lives through a different lens than maybe they had at the time. Mm -hmm. And another fun thing to see is all of my colleagues all over the world sending me pictures of my book on their shelves in their office. It's like, yay, <laughs> we're doing it. We're getting the word out there. That's really exciting. I, I absolutely love it when I, someone sends me a picture of my book on their shelf in their office. Absolutely. Uh, it, again, just just knowing that this book exists sometimes, right? <laughs> and just knowing sometimes that parents are reading it or that adults who care about kids are reading this book, sometimes even, even that. Um, and I know last time we talked about your book, but we talked about how it's very, uh, it's kind of like a manual. <laughs> There's, it's very like, um, and, and it's very pro uh, uh, practical. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in its steps. And I think that just really helps for people to uh, be able to understand because I uh, say, well, what am I supposed to do now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, what do I say? What is my face supposed to do? Right. If somebody's coming out to me, especially my kid is coming out to me and then I'm still their mother or father or step parent for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, right. And so what am I supposed to say and do? And how is my face of us in those kinds of things? Uh, be in the beyond part of the title. And that's where I want to remind people who may not have heard the first uh, episode that we did together, that as a parent, your number one job at that moment when your kid is risking and willing to come out to you, this deep level of honesty and trust and vulnerability is to open your arms wide, hug them in tight and let them know that you love them. 
That is the number one thing that you can do to create that foundation so that you can have a lifetime connected as parent and child as you move through the rest of the experience of them coming out and you coming out as well as the parent, the proud parent of an LGBTQIA plus kid. I love that. There's, there can be uh, sometimes so much fear, right? What am I going to, I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong, but we're never going to, it's never going to be a mistake to say to our child, I love you. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be a mistake to hug or hold our child in that mm-hmm. moment or in any moment. <laughs> uh, so I, I love that because I, uh, you know, if, if for parents who might have fear about, oh gosh, I don't want to mess this up. Right. What do I do? Uh, it's, or gosh, I think I already messed it up, but knowing that, no, that is, that is the one thing you can do and you will not mess that up. Right. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, what else have you kind of uh, learned about your book from from other people kind of responding? I love that you had this new audience of, of people who really benefited from it. That was kind of a surprise. Uh, <laughs> what other things have you kind of gotten feedback about? The one thing that's been really beautiful to hear from people is their understanding of like me as a person in reflection to the book. Um, because that's one of the things that I had an amazing editor and they really helped me develop was my voice in the book. And what people always reflect back is like sitting down with someone with a warm cup of tea, who's hearing all of my fears and all of my anxieties and saying like, look, let's take a breath. You're going to be okay. And to realize that people are reading that they're feeling it through the written word, through the pages as they turn on, you know, and then go through each little moment in the book. That to me is really exciting. And I'm really proud that that came across as clearly as it did in the experience of people reading the book. I know one thing I wrote down that we talked about in our first episode too, is how we talked about like the grieving process when a parent first gets told or their child comes out to them, like grieving, like what they expected their child's life to be like. Can you kind of give some ideas um, or tips that for parents who are going through that grieving process? Well, the number one thing, and just a reminder about this is to realize as a parent, you are going through a grieving process. And with the kids that I work with, reminding them that their parents are going through a grieving process as well. And letting everyone know it's not you're grieving because your kid has come out to you. It's grieving and letting go of this dream you had of who they would be as they grew up. And so really creating that space of compassion, that seems to be our code word for today, this space of compassion between all the family members to understand that there is a process going on and to look and understand that it's affecting the entire family. So where parents might be grieving in a certain way, maybe a sibling is grieving because it changes their outlook and relationship where the kid may be grieving because now they've realized they've made this step in this conversation. So to understand that there is a lot of emotional dynamism in this grieving process. And so there are going to be highs and lows of moment of connection, moments of distance as each person is going through that and not to be afraid of that because as we travel through emotion, that's where we get to grow and learn. And you, you have a blog as well on your uh, website and you, you have a recent article called the worst four letter word. And <laughs> as you're talking about, about grief, but also there's this fear part um, that can come into uh, for any of us, right? As humans, we have fear naturally. Um, but as that fear kind of or as we reflect on that fear driving us or not, uh, we can make some real progress in in uh, feeling controlled by that fear. Can you tell us more about that? 
Mm -hmm. So yeah, I joke about the idea that they, uh, this is the worst four letter word in the language. It also begins with F and it's fear. Um, so many of us have this idea that fear is going to shut us down. It's going to move us into places that are uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And as human beings, as creatures, we don't like going into uncomfortable places. It's not where we're biologically created to go. And so the body creates this physiological response that says, no, don't go there. There are times though, when maybe that voice needs to hear the message, no, don't go there. And then be willing with support and with, you know, a, a collection of people around you being there or whatever you need to do for yourself to perhaps take a tiny little, like dip your toe into the shallow end of that thing that you're so afraid of. And then be like, wow, that's not so bad. Interesting. Maybe there's more for me to experience and learn here. And then you like sit down on the edge of this pool and you put your feet in and your knees in and you kind of sway there. And then you're like, oh no, there are sharks under the water. I need to back up. But you've got those people supporting you. And that these messages of fear are so often based on things that we were taught when we were young, you know, ways of being that we were exposed to either culturally or religiously or family mythology. And so pushing against those stories of what we've been told and being willing to look into those fearful places is an incredible place of, of growth. I mean, this is kind of the, the basis of a lot of Jungian therapy, this being willing to do shadow work, to know that all of us and our most beautiful loving selves do have a side that has a little bit of shadow to it. Um, looking at the yin-yang and how it moves in that circular energy of the dark side and the light side, the two fishes swimming in a circle, chasing each other's tail, that they have to both exist in space and in our spirit for us to be able to move more effectively in the world. Um, I know that just went really deep, really fast. <laughs> how do you uh, like kind of push your clients to overcome that fear and do like put their toes in the water and try that first? Like, is that difficult with my clients to help walk them through that process of trying things they're afraid of? So the first thing I do is really like lean back into the relationship that we've created in the room. You know, as a therapist, you you know a lot of it's about timing. Um, you know, I remember as a newbie therapist wanting to like, oh, I've got this great idea. We have to do this thing with this client now. And then as a more experienced therapist, you start to learn, huh, we need to build a relationship. We need to build some trust in the room. We need to kind of look around this thing from the sides, like, like going back to the pool analogy. We need to like look inside the building and see, oh, there's a pool in there. And then we need to maybe go inside and walk around on the deck for a little bit and say like, okay, oh, that pool's there. And it's, oh, it's kind of like, looks tough and deep and blue. And I'm, I'm scared before we can step into it. So once we've built that trust and relationship, then it sometimes come to a very honest moment of saying, look, we need to just rely on what we've built together as a place where we can where we can both walk into this sphere. And, you know, from this postmodern stance, my idea of therapy is I'm walking side by side with my clients. And so in that idea is like, I'm right by your side. Let's just take our first look into this. And then using a lot of the trauma-based techniques, um, I do brain spotting and somatic work. So a lot of it is about body awareness, 
okay, as we're stepping into this, how is your body reacting? Where are you feeling it in your body? How could we release that feeling? What happens when you take that exhale and release that energy? So that we're not jumping into the deep end of the pool, but we're using the trust of the relationship we built and the techniques that I've been trained in over the years to help you move just a little bit deeper into that scary place. It really, it's, it's that similar skill that you're using uh, when you're working with uh, legislation and when you're working with <laughs> discussing these big, these big changes and these big ideas to people who might have a lot of fear uh, around them. And, uh, you know, when you were talking about uh, the, the bill that um, you were able to work on about uh, not having dead names on driver's licenses, that the idea of it, I think, causes a lot of fear for a lot of people for some reasons that that you brought up, like logistically, what are we going to do? Right. How is that going to work with safety? How's that going to work with background checks? Right. All of that stuff. Um, and so I think because you are are able to use that same stance that you're using when you're helping your clients to look at their fear, to acknowledge their fear, to uh, to step into their fear a little bit. Um, you're able to use that uh, that same skill set, that same desire to help and to walk with people uh, as you're having even these heated debates by saying like, what is it? Like, what, what experiences have you had that have led you to this conclusion, right? What, what is the fear um, that's coming, which then allows you to come in and say, okay, that, that's a valid fear. What about background checks, right? Like, that's totally a valid fear. Yeah. How do we do this and address that valid, uh, that valid concern? Uh, so, well, and it, I think one thing that anyone who's a client or potential client who's listening and for clinicians themselves to understand. So we may be sitting in this chair providing this safe space, but we are also having big feelings. We may be triggered too. It's like, Ooh, that client's thing has come up. My body's starting to have a reaction. Okay. John feet in the floor, take a deep breath, center, be present. We are real people too. And so I think it's so important for clients to understand that we're not just willy nilly walking into your fears and saying, let's conquer this. No, we're being compassionate people who are creating a supportive environment where you can take this journey and we are having a journey as well ourselves. Okay. And I kind of want to go back to your out talk that I haven't listened to yet uh, <laughs> about, uh, I will listen to that after, but um, about being out in corporate America. Um, I know we kind of mentioned in our last episode, like making agencies and organizations like more affirming. Do you have suggestions or ideas for agencies to put in place to kind of help with being more affirming? Well, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a, a agency wide, corporate wide, company wide change that has to happen. Oftentimes I brought in to train like on the executive level. And what I talk about when I'm coming in is like, no, we need to do this training from the person who's serving coffee into the morning to the CEO. Everyone needs to be on board with this idea of how we're going to create a, an affirming environment. The first place it can start with is looking at language, looking at how we create very gendered conversations. Um, if you look at most policy manuals, it'll often say he, you know, or it'll say he, she but that may not actually be correct. And so understanding how even these subtle things are sending messages that we're not necessarily an affirming space and really trying to demystify the story of who I am and who we are as an LGBTQIA plus community. 
so that we're not something to be feared or pointed at or fetishized. And so having these more open conversations can be really, really powerful. And then looking through the entire company, looking through the entire agency and saying, well, where are the spots where this isn't necessarily working? Where are the spots where we need to bring this up? So then that's going to bring up another area and bring up another area. It can be a very strong domino effect if we can really get everyone on board with paying attention to the needs of the LGBTQIA plus community within an organization. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked in that, uh, in that out talk about sometimes organizations do try <laughs> and, and not that anybody is ever saying, oh, don't try. Um, but that sometimes there are, uh, there's allyship that occurs like in one initiative and then just never happens again or You're that happens so polite one right month, now. <laughs> one month just... a year. I I will say I had an experience because our um so our Facebook page uh for our agency uh has our logo but it has like the rainbow filter on it. And I had done that for Pride Month when like what Crystal like five, six years ago. Like the beginning yeah. of agency, yeah. Like and <laughs> I remember reading about rainbow wash. It may, I don't remember how long ago this was, but I remember reading about this and going like, oh, I'm just going to keep it up. And it, it's been that rainbow filter for like six years. And I don't always think about that, but people have noticed that. And sometimes people notice it in a really, you know, like, oh, I really love that. I feel so, and sometimes people notice it, like, I'm not going to work here because that's your, your profile photo, right? Um, or I'm not going to be a client here because you've got that out there and it's not June, you know? So I think that there's, um, I think that sometimes for organizations, I'll just speak for, for myself, we do get some of that backlash um, where it's like, Okay, we are, and so I think it really just speaks to needing it to be uh, an authentic show of support versus like for some sort of external um, reward because you're not going to get the external reward, or at least I don't know that we necessarily, I think we we do, and a lot of people feel really supported, but then uh, we get a lot of backlash too for that, right? And people will say like, I, this is my belief and I'm not, and we're like, okay, then good to know that now. Like, thank you. Um, because we know, okay, well then we're not a good fit for you to be on our team. Um, but at the same time, I think that, uh, it just really speaks to, we do it because that's an accurate picture of who we are as an organization. Um, but if we wanted like people to like that, (laughs) sometimes that's going to happen. And a lot of times it's not right. So, um, I think that just really speaks to what you had said in that, that episode too, of like having that sustainability and how, what are some of those other ways that we can, uh, so if we say, okay, this is what we're, we're looking at handbooks, right. We're looking at, um, the messages that we send, uh, but it really sometimes do you find ever that it comes down to, uh, are people genuinely <laughs> having that experience or having that feeling or thought, or are they just doing it because that's what is expected to be done? 
Mm -hmm. I hope that question makes sense. Well, there are lots of layers to that. So let me, let me just step in with what I believe I heard. Um, so there is this thing you use rainbow washing. We also call it performative pride where June is, you know, pride month. And all of a sudden every corporation in the world has rainbows and supportive things and videos on their, you know, social media about supporting the queer community. And then July 1st comes around and it all disappears. So that's not necessarily helping the community at large. What does make a difference is making a decision that we as an organization are going to support our LGBTQ people in the community and also within our company itself. And sometimes that might not make you popular with certain people, and that has got to be okay. There has got to be a, a support of the idea that we are an agency that supports LGBTQ people within our doors. And that means both clinicians and clients coming through. And so if someone has a problem with that, then you may not be the right agency for them. And guess what? That is totally okay. In fact, it's a good thing because then you're going to be able to create what you want your agency to be. I do think there's also an emphasis on it being purposeful. That as a, you know, a CEO, a director of an agency, a leader of a principal of a school, that making a decision that we are an LGBTQ affirming environment means that then you can step forward with policies and procedures that will help that trickle down through the entire organization. But it is dependent on the leader saying, yes, this is a statement I want to make. And then knowing that it has to be ongoing, it has to be a continual learning process. The one that's really hard for me, and I call people that I get hired to do trainings with all the time, is like, this cannot be a one and done experience. Um, you can't just have one training and say like, yay, we're LGBTQ affirming. It's not. It's an ongoing process of learning and growing and being involved in the community, reaching out, volunteering hours with organizations in your community that, that could use your hours, being willing to show up at a pride event, being willing to show up at a school you know, board meeting because there's some anti-LGBTQ rules that are being put into place in your community. And you as supporters of LGBT kids don't want that being supported. It's a challenge but it's really important to create that support and allyship with it th throughout the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are some other topics on OutTalks that people can expect to hear um, that you guys have come out with lately? Well, we had this really amazing series and it's going to be ongoing. And it is about working with LGBTQIA plus communities of color. And we've done an amazing job. Last year we had, um, uh, a black uh, supporting within the medical care community. We had one for Hispanic. We had one for um, Asian Pacific Islanders. This year we're doing one, our next month's one is actually on cultural humility within the spectrum of serving multiple communities. I believe we're doing a um, native indigenous people ones later this year. And it's a really beautiful conversation. Um, they're very rich and very wonderful. And I am very humbled to be able to sit in space with these leaders in these communities 
to hear their voices lean in and educate and support both from lived experience, but also from the policies that they're implementing in the world they live in. Um, it's really incredible work. And I, I would encourage anyone to go back and listen to those episodes and join us for the ongoing, because what we don't know and what we don't understand about all the different communities that exist in our world is a deficit for us as a therapist and as a person. You mentioned cultural humility. Can you go into what that is? <laughs> so if anyone's watching this, you can see I'm like probably one of the whitest, palest people you ever meet in your life. Okay. And I own that. What it means is if I have a client sitting across from me who is from a different cultural lived experience, that I don't make assumptions. I don't base their reactions on the world that I grew up in. I show humbleness and curiosity in the room. You know, what does that mean within the Persian community? Um, you know, we know in the Persian community, there's a lot of anti-LGBTQ sentiment. So if I'm working with a Persian client who's in the process of coming out, how does that look in your world? What is your family statement about it? You know, are you first generation, second generation? What does that look like? How is it different? How is it similar? So really being in this place of like, I do not know your lived experience. And I want to hear from you how these concepts we're experiencing play out in your world. Understanding that maybe if I'm working with a Hispanic male client, that there is this story of machismo, which is very, very ongoing in the community. And the idea of being emotionally vulnerable and being open and maybe even shedding a tear is the antithesis of what they were raised with. And then if we look at the idea of coming out as a gay male, you know, which is often interpreted with some communities as being a feminine quality, being a gay male, then how does that push up against their cultural experience growing up? And so this ability to say, I do not know, tell me how it is for you, not educating me on the entire community, but how it is for you within your community and cultural experience. And that I think is something we as therapists can bring that humbleness into the room. Yeah, absolutely. Super interesting. Um, I feel like we could have you on like a million more episodes. <laughs> like so many more questions. And it's like almost time to wrap up. Um, if you could give a suggestion of somebody on the fence about starting counseling, what suggestion might you give? Well, it's kind of like our pool analogy from, from earlier. You can stay on the fence and not move. Or you can just lean over to that side of therapy and be curious about what you can learn about yourself. Wonderful. And dip your toe into the pool of therapy and yeah. see how it see how it is. Uh, wonderful. Well, John, thank you so much for being on our show again today and coming back and uh, and talking with us more. I, I always feel like there's so much that we learn from you and that we get to experience from talking to you. And it's just wonderful. So we really, really appreciate it. Um, your book is called Out with an exclamation point, uh, a parent's guide to supporting your LGBTQIA plus uh, kid through coming out and beyond. And I always say I love the beyond part of that uh, title. And so uh, Out Talks also, people can go to www.outcarehealth.org 
uh, with a forward slash out talk. But if you go to that page, uh, you'll see the out talk link right there as well. Um, and they are fantastic and they're easy listening if you're, uh, you know, doing dishes or something like that. You can still uh, hear and you hear just so much great content. So uh, we really appreciate that. Um, John's website, also johnsovac.com um, for counseling as well. And especially uh, for those young people, teenagers, families um, that are, are working through really any kind of situation as it relates to that family system um, is going to be appropriate there uh just like your blogs are um are just really really great topics so <laughs> i i'm i'm excited about that so check out the blogs too they are awesome my name is john sobeck and i need a counselor awesome thank you so much and i'm chris hunt and i'm julie johnson and we need a counselor and so do you bye Thank you for listening to the You Need a Counselor podcast. We are so grateful that you're here. Now, we want to hear from you. Text us or give us a call at 515-650-3231. You can also find and connect with You Need a Counselor on Facebook and Instagram. If you've enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to like, review, or leave a comment, as all of these things help others to find and benefit from the podcast as well. If you're in the state of Iowa and interested in mental health counseling or behavioral health intervention services, give us a call at 800-531-4236. And if you're a provider seeking play therapy CEUs, you can find us on patreon.com slash you need a training. We'll see you for the next episode Sunday at five.